night. First Samuel. I've already kind of asked the kids this. What other highlights are there in First Samuel? This is a just a moment where I'd like I'd ask you to just go ahead and shout out some answers. What are things that happen in the book of First Samuel? Samuel is born, yes. A great place to start. That's actually at the very beginning, yeah. Samuel's born. Who is the Samuel guy? Does anybody know? Prophet. What else? Priest. He also serves as a judge in one sense. Oh, somebody said something. What? Yeah, right. He's the transitionary character from the previous period in Israel's history of being ruled under judges to then going into the monarchy with Saul. What other things happen in the book of 1 Samuel? You can say the ones the kids already said too, if that's what's coming to your mind. Saul becomes king. Yep. He's kind of the second major character. Yes. Samuel's birth is significant in the matter of this small family where Hannah has been without child for years in her marriage. And, and so he's a sign of the Lord's favor and grace in their lives? Absolutely, yeah. Any other things come to mind? Yeah, what else? That's right. David is anointed as a king. That's going to be very, very important, Gideon, isn't it? That whole idea of anointing and what that means for David and for God's people, right? Lots of things happen in the book of 1 Samuel. Well, I want to... Um, take a moment. Of course, I want to remind you too, we do have an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Um, This is in one sense a difficult thing to smush an entire book into a sermon. I think the biggest challenge for me in weeks past was to try to find a one-sentence exhortation from the entire book. And you might be looking at your outline and thinking, well, that sounds very simplistic. And maybe it is. But we're going to take as the call this morning that God is calling us to put our trust in the true king of God's people. The true king of God's people. Now, Sunday School Answer Church, who is the true king of God's people today? Jesus. Excellent. Good. In the context of 1 Samuel, there is going to be a true king who gets anointed king, as Gideon has already said. David is anointed king, but he doesn't actually get placed as king until the next book that we're going to study, which will be 2 Samuel. And originally, it was all one book. I actually didn't go back and find out why it got separated, maybe just for the sake of the length of the book. But we're going to be starting with 1 Samuel. We're going to be starting not with David, but with this guy named Samuel. And we'll see even from the front of this book that this call to put our trust in the true king of God's people is one line that we can trace throughout all 31 chapters of 1 Samuel. Again, a reminder, I think I I said earlier already, the regular diet of God's people that the elders kind of see as, as healthy and sustainable is to go through books of the Bible. We have different points where we stop and we preach from different passages or we do special topical messages on occasion, but this is going to be an especially unique time to practice expository preaching because the elders are also going to jump in and preach from 1 Samuel on the weeks that I'm not preaching as well. So we're going to be, the plan at least right now, largely is to be in 1 Samuel for the bulk of this year, perhaps more so 
than we have been in, uh, at other times. But um, expository preaching, preaching from God's word, preaching from the beginning of a book all the way to the end, and tracing a theme, finding Christ most importantly, um, is what we want to kind of jump into this week. So why study First Samuel? Why wouldn't we just say, we just finished John, what else is there even that we need? And going from John back to 1 Samuel almost sounds like we're going back to a time where we don't have as much information. How is this going to be better than John or as good as, for, as, as John? We believe that God's word in its entirety is breathed out by God, that it is helpful to us in every way in our Christian lives. And I think as you have your finger in 1 Samuel, I know I already told you, that we're going to start there. I'm going to read first, though, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says, in regards to the Old Testament, he says this as a sweeping statement for all of what Scripture was at the time of his writing. He says, These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. That is, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. Paul believed that all of God's word was applicable for today. When we go back centuries to 1 Samuel, and we consider how in the world could this, could this ancient book speak to my life today, it comes down to a question of whether we believe God's word does what God's word says it does. Again, as Paul has said, these things were written down for our instruction. It's interesting the contrast he gives here. He says they happened to them, the people that we're going to be reading about, the things happened to them as an example. They had to learn from it. It was discipline. But for us, it's instructive. It is, in one sense, to boil it down, learning from other people's mistakes. But Paul is not wrong in calling this word from 1 Samuel and all of the Bible something that's written for our instruction or something that happened as an example. Because theologians and biblical scholars call the genre of what's happening in 1 Samuel um, a really cool term. I actually hadn't heard this before. Preached history. Preached history. And what's fascinating about preached history is that it's the idea of transferring lessons through dramatic storytelling and demanding a response. And that last part is actually some of the hardest work to do when we read these Old Testament books especially. They're transferring lessons through dramatic storytelling and demanding a response. That's where history becomes preached history. Now, this is interesting for me too because for five years I taught middle school history. And that subject particularly, I mean, if there was a time in the day where the kids gave me the look of what in the world does any of this matter, it was history. It was in that period of the day where they would look and go, why do I care what a bunch of old dead guys said or did or where they went or any of that stuff? We know from a very popular quote that those who refuse to learn from history are doomed to what? Do you remember? Repeat it, right? There's a great warning in just history in general. But if we come to the Bible and consider preached history in the Bible, we're considering that God is showing us particular events through which he worked to bring about his plan. Now, God works throughout all of history, right? But you're not going to go to the end of the New Testament and find the formation of the United States. That's not included in the Bible. But these moments are. 
these moments are pointed out as rather important moments. So I, my exhortation to you in thinking about putting your trust in the true king of God's people is that as we see the foreshadowing of the kingship of Christ in 1 Samuel, that you would anticipate that the themes that happen around this story are going to line up with themes in your own lives as well. Because though so much has changed in the centuries between 1 Samuel and 2023, I think that there's more that hasn't changed, particularly in the areas that God's word addresses. Namely, first, our need to put our trust in our true king. 1 Samuel happens historically right after the book of Judges, as some of you have already mentioned. And if you remember Judges, we preached through a couple of years ago, which is part of why I just thought, let's continue on to 1 Samuel after preaching Ruth as well. If you remember the history of the Judges, it's a repeat, re, repeated cycle where God's people sin, they face a consequence for their sin, usually being taken over by their enemies. They cry out for salvation. God grants that salvation. And then they start the cycle all over again after a period of peace. And one of the things you probably remember if you were around for the book of Judges is that there was a continual refrain, in a sense, that the author gives us. Over and over, he said, usually after a big story, something, some terrible sin is committed, and the people do something that just really raises eyebrows. And the author tells us, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The author recognized that the need that Israel had was for a king. And that's what 1 Samuel comes in as an answer to, as it were. Ruth happens in between Judges and 1 Samuel to show in a very short and wonderful story, God working through normal events to bring about extraordinary results. Namely, that Ruth, who marries Boaz and has a son, um, creates, in one sense, the line from which we get King David and ultimately Christ as well. Now, what's interesting is, if you, if you can kind of put your finger on the problem that we're going to get to um, in the book of 1 Samuel, you might think the problem is they wanted a king when they shouldn't have had a king, right? And God even specifically says, their problem is that they've rejected me. They've not rejected Samuel. They've not just, the, the problem at the root is that they've rejected God as their true king. What's fascinating is, is that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, and if you want to know, it's verses 14 through 20, we see God laying out expectations for how a king is to be placed and how that king is to rule over God's people. I'm going to go there for just a moment and read to you a couple of those verses. Again, this is Deuteronomy 17, if you'd like to turn there. We will get to something in verse Samuel eventually, I promise. But this is what's sort of hard about starting a, a new sermon series is that we have to do a lot of backgroundy stuff. So Deuteronomy 17 and verse 14, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among you, from your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, 
He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. And then verse 20 especially, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. You notice that as God lays out the expectations for a king, and he says, all the knots, all the things to avoid, all the things that you associate with kings, a mighty army, um, many riches, many wives, all these kinds of things, God is saying, the thing you need to watch out for is his heart. This is the primary concern of God for the king. Not his skills, his attributes, his abilities, rather his character above all else. And that's one of the messages of 1 Samuel, that God turns our expectations and the world's standards upside down. God cares more about who you are than what you are able to do. And it starts with, are you one who can put your trust in the true king of God's people? The overall message may be summed up simply in that, trusting the true king. Well, the story is told through three major characters, and you already knew the first one. He's the title of the book, Samuel, in chapters 1 through 7. He's introduced, as we've already said, to through his mother, Hannah. If you would go again then to 1 Samuel chapter 1, you can see laid out in this first chapter, the setup is not first about, and then Samuel showed up and started doing his thing, but rather, we have the story about his mother, his mother, Hannah. If you look at verse 1, there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. You notice that this is so often how God works in history. So many stories start with, here's a man and his wife, and his wife had no children. You know, historically, the context you know, is important to note that this wasn't just a choice of Hannah. I don't really know if I'm mother material. Every woman wanted to grow up and become a mother. Everyone wanted to get married. Everyone wanted to have kids. Kids were your life insurance policy. They were who were going to take care of you in your old age. They were a sign, as the culture determined, of God's blessing in your life. And so Hannah seems to be one who is unblessed. Hannah then goes, as she does year by year with her husband, she goes and she has a moment of praying before the Lord. Um, this priest, Eli, in verse 12 um, observes her praying and, and starts to reveal, you know, that the problem of the book of Samuel is that leaders are wicked and fallen and self-centered and ignorant of God's ways. If you look at verse 12 of chapter 1, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart and only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Now, just for context for today, if I came into the church and I noticed somebody sitting in any of the pink chairs silently and I looked over to them and saw their lips moving, what do you think I would assume is happening? It'd be prayer, right? 
Now, it may be that this happened so infrequently that people were just not going to prayer before the Lord that Eli was shocked at the idea of somebody actually being present to do so. But certainly the leader of God's people, the priest over Israel, should have expected, I think this woman might be praying. But his first jump is to say, she's drunk. She's out of her mind. I don't know what she's up to, but it is dishonoring to the Lord when exactly the opposite is true. Hannah then becomes this, the mother of Samuel as the promise is given and the promise is shown, and she gives Samuel back to the service of the Lord. Samuel is devoted as a priest by his mother, but then he's also called by God to be a prophet. You can zoom forward in the book um, over to chapter 3, and that's where you'll find um, Samuel in the middle of the night being called by God, and he keeps going to Eli because he thinks it's Eli's voice. And what's fascinating again there is you see Eli failing as a priest of God because he himself cannot discern the voice of God either. Samuel then is basically called to be a prophet by the Lord, but he's also looked at by the people as the last judge, the last military leader, as we saw in the book of Judges. And you see that in chapter 7, if you look forward. You see him in verse 3. He said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, Remember that. This matter of the heart keeps coming up in 1 Samuel. And we want to keep, keep that in our minds bookmarked. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel's not a king. He's looked at as a judge, as a leader of the people who will tell them what they need to do, tell them how, remind them of God's word. And that is where Samuel's leadership is centered, all around God's word. The constant call of Samuel is to put your trust in the true king of God's people. And so we see that. God's people are called to trust in him as the true king overall and follow his ways. And whenever those two conditions are not being met, that's where the trouble always comes. You know, J.C. Ryle has a very great quote that I think applies well to 1 Samuel. He says, the best men are still men at their best. Really, really informative and helpful as we consider the next character in the story being Saul. And even the last major character being David. The The best men are men at their best. And men at their best are not that great. Now, this is an over, overarching uh, statement about humanity. Humans at their best, men and women, even at our best, are not up to snuff with God's standard. And so enters the conflict of 1 Samuel. Worldly standards start to appeal to God's people. And I put in your outline this morning that worldly standards appeal to the church. Because one of the important things for us to recognize as we study an Old Testament book is that there's an ease that we have in saying, that was Israel's problem. That was why all the Old Testament failed. That was why we needed Jesus. Now we're the church. We don't have the same problems. The fact is is that God's people for all of time face so many of the exact same issues. Their hearts are not bent towards God. They are not listening for the voice of God. They're not having that, that input from God's word, from his leadership in their lives as their true king. We have a cactus at home that looks so sad. He's basically laying on his side. He's absolutely, I mean, weeks ago, there was just no hope. It looked like he was totally done. Now, cactuses are supposed to be these easy plants to take care of, right? They don't really need a whole lot of sunlight. They don't need a lot of water. You should be able to just largely leave them alone. 
in our leaving our cactus friend alone, we nearly killed him, which isn't a surprise in our household. We, we have this pattern. Um, you know, 2221 Glenwood Avenue is where all plants go to die, at least inside. Outside, my wife does a lot better. But this cactus was in dire need of help. And it's January. There is no hope for sunlight, right? I mean, vitamin D is something we are all lacking. I took this poor little cactus guy and I brought him into my office and I set him in my window on the side of the house where the sun shines the brightest and the longest. And honestly, after a couple days, dude started to stand up quite a bit better. Partially because I put popsicle sticks behind him to help him have something to lean on. But you can look at this cactus and see there is improvement because the sun is shining on him. My friends, this is the conflict of the book of 1 Samuel and the conflict in our lives as well. If we do not have the Son of God shining in our hearts, we shrivel up and die spiritually. It'd be very easy to look at 1 Samuel and say, man, you know, historically and narratively, the problem, the conflict, the enemy of the book is the Philistines. Those guys are the real problem. They keep coming up from the beginning to the end. They're Saul's problem. They're, they're David's destiny to ultimately defeat. But the biggest problem in 1 Samuel happens in chapter 8, if you'd go there and look at verse 4. After Samuel had basically retired, his sons took over for him, and they did a terrible job. In verse 3, he says, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. They were affected by worldly standards and motives. Then in verse 4, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us. Pausing there for a moment. It's not the complete sentence. But notice that if they would have stopped there, and if that was truly their heart's motives to say, now appoint for us a king, we could go back to Deuteronomy and say, okay, there is provision in the law for kings to be established. But look at the rest of the sentence. Appoint for us a king, they say, like all the nations. Church, do you know that God never does anything in and through his people, so they can look like the rest of the world. God has no intention of camouflaging his people so that we can simply blend in and seem to go with the flow of everyone else. Yes, he made provisions for there to be a kingship, a monarchy to be established, and right now seems to be the time. But the words of the elders in this moment appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the nations, reveals the main problem for the people of God. And so God says to Samuel in verse 6, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. It's not that they wanted to establish what God had already approved and granted for them in the law, but rather that they wanted to look like the rest of the world. They saw their problems and looked for solutions outside of God's will. That is the problem of 1 Samuel, and that is the problem of your life. You might say, I have established a great Christian bubble that I live in. You will never be able to 
fully protect yourself from worldly influences so long as you're in this world. And that is by design. Because God's intention for his people is not to just live in a little bubble in a corner somewhere in Lima so that we can just stay to ourselves and keep ourselves holy and not be affected by those outside. God has called his people to go out into the world. He has equipped us to do so. And yet, and and, and in fact, God even allows the risk of our worldliness for the sake of his mission, of our being affected by the world because he intends to redeem even our failings, as he does with Israel here. When our hearts are set on worldly goals or influenced by worldly influences, there are times when the Lord simply gives us what we want. And that's what he tells Samuel to do. Give them what they want. And that then becomes his way of disciplining his people through giving them exactly what they prayed for. Now take that to 2023. Consider perhaps that the prosperity in your life, either financially or emotionally or health-wise or those kinds of things, could it be that if your prayer life centers so much around securing your temporary time on this earth, could it be that God might just give you those blessings for the purpose of discipline in your life? That's a hard pill to swallow but it seems to be something that God does on occasion with his people. Can't definitively say it every time. We don't know at the beginning or even in the middle sometimes what God is truly doing. We know that his work is always to sanctify, to make his people holy, to make them more into the image of Christ. But it may very well be that part of that plan includes our ignorance of his ways being turned around for our good. In fact, what Israel ends up doing is sacrificing holiness for vanity. Because that's all that the world has to offer. It would be a great exercise to read Pilgrim's Progress as we go through 1 Samuel and see some overlap, um, particularly in a place called Vanity Fair, as uh, Bunyan wrote. But we move from Samuel to the next major character, who is Saul. Chapters 8 through 15 are his reign. Saul is introduced to us And physically, the number one thing you need to know about Saul was that he is tall. I mean, that's a pretty sad thing when that's the best thing you can say about somebody. But really, that's what Israel liked about Saul. Saul was one whom God chose, not because he had a heart after God, but because he did indeed have this appeal of worldly standards in his own heart. And so as we come to the introduction of him, you'll see some of his cowardice and his false humility that shows up. But probably one of the most defining moments for Saul is in chapter 15 and verse 17, where he impatient, or rather, he is disobedient in the command of, that God gives him. He's commanded to wipe out an entire people and leave none alive, which, boy, that's, that's a tough thing for us to read in 2023 anyway. We'll deal with that when we get to chapter 15. But Samuel chose to leave the king alive. He chose to leave the best of the livestock alive. He chose to use those for sacrifices and for the spoil of war. Samuel shows up and says, this is not what you were supposed to do. And in verse 17, he says, are you so little in your own eyes, even though you're the king of Israel? He then goes on to say, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
See, Samuel points out that Saul thinks himself humble. He thinks himself fit for the role of king that God has put him in. But it really doesn't take long before God says, I'm taking all of this away from you. And showing the people what they've asked for and finding an impressive man, as Mark Dever points out. We just find out that they're really sacrificing holiness for convenience, as we see through, Samuel's life, through Saul's life, through his disobedience. It was more convenient for Saul to, in this instance with the Amalekites, to keep some of the things alive so that he could have some spoils, so he could have some kind of reward, so that he could convenience himself in the work that God had given him. But he ends up becoming just a tragic story of a worldly leader trying to lead an unworldly people. His downfall in chapter 28 is especially tragic. He comes to a point where the Philistines are attacking him, and he's, a, he's scared of them yet again. And he reaches out to the Lord through prophets, through um, casting lots, and through prayer, and through worship. And Sam, 1 Samuel 28 says, the Lord did not answer him over and over again. And Saul is forced to resort to, uh, con- uh, to going to a witch to try to figure out what he's supposed to do next asking a witch to conjure up the spirit of Samuel, which is another crazy passage in this book that asks a lot of questions, uh, or that brings up a lot of questions for us. But Saul's life basically begins with the idea of a tall, good-looking guy. In the world's eyes, he seemed to be the right man, but in the end, in God's eyes, he was absolutely the wrong man for the job. He may have been impressive to the world, but he was not impressive to the God who created that world. God's people should not expect to reap a growing relationship with God while living like the world. When we allow worldliness into our lives, into our priorities, we shouldn't expect that our relationship with Christ will grow, but rather that we will experience what is essentially the silence of God until things are made right. And so when our lives and our Bibles lie undisturbed, we live prayerless lives, we live distant from other believers, and the world is unaffected by our testimony because worldly standards so often appeal to us, even in the church. By the way, there's a giant. We mentioned the giant, didn't we, in chapter 17? This is where David comes on the scene and is you know, kind of revealed to the whole world, and he has his great moment, but the giant shows us in chapter 17 that God's people need a savior, that the worldly standards that are so appealing to them have left them cowering and terrified at the idea of their enemies. And so David comes in as our last primary character from chapter 16 through 31. And where was David from? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. We sing it every year, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Uh, An unexpected place for someone so great as David to come from. David was not only from a small town, but he was the runt of his father's family. He was the smallest one, the youngest one, the opposite of Saul in the world's eyes. In chapter 16, verse 7, we see why God chose him. And you already know why, perhaps. As Samuel is going through all of, all of uh, Jesse's sons to try to find the one he was to anoint to make king, God says to him here in whoops, yeah, 16, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature like with Saul. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David comes in as the substitute 
to replace Saul because Saul's heart is wrong. David isn't initially what people wanted. They didn't want a kid to come in to save them. But David is exactly what God wanted. David is exactly what God appointed to bring salvation because his heart was wholly devoted to the Lord. He then reminds us back to Deuteronomy 17 of the king who is rightly chosen by the Lord to take this position. Whereas Saul was the impressive man, Mark Dever says, David is the impressed man, impressed with God. 1 Samuel, as a book, shows us how God reacts to individual decisions and their corporate consequences. That's why these leaders are so important. When Samuel is constantly saying, return to the Lord, listen to his voice, remember what he said, and Saul comes up and says, forget the Lord. I've got this. I'm the tall one, remember? David comes back as the impressed man who reminds God's people, who's chosen by God's people to save them, to remind them of all of God's salvation in history past. Chapter 17 then, one that I'm really excited to preach in the coming weeks. And verse 45, as we have the whole story you're familiar with, with David and Goliath. In verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This is what the world does, defies the Lord. And if we are to attach ourselves to worldly appeals, we are walking in defiance of God himself. David comes in then not to say, Hey, you people have earned yourself a savior, but rather I am the Savior who's been given to you by grace. In like manner, then, King Jesus wins back his lost people because of his love, his heart full of love for God, obviously, just like David, a heart after God's own heart, but also his love for his people. And Christ defeats his enemies in justice, in just the same way as David struck down the Philistine, defeating the enemy of God's people. So God sends Jesus to strike down the enemy of God's people, sin at the cross. David was hunted for years from chapter 18 through 26, years of waiting, not only for him, but for Israel. Israel waiting and needing a righteous king. And yet David is used to turn Israel's heart to the Lord in that process. David is devoted to the Lord. He's not devoted to vanity or convenience. He chooses not to attack his enemy Saul. He doesn't take the throne by his own power or his own strength, but he trusts in the justice of the Lord again and again. And so again, we have Jesus from David's line who defeated the giant of sin, who waited patiently in through his ministry, who, the, for whom the people of God waited for hundreds of years before the revealing of the Messiah, of the true king of God's people. Jesus comes and overthrows the devil's reign over his people. He grants a heart like his to all who believe in him. And he brings us into his kingdom by, the work, by his work at the cross. He is the true, humble, obedient king who wins his people in love and defeats his enemies in justice, just as we'll see with David. Jesus is the reason it's important for us to study 1 Samuel, because in 1 Samuel we will see our true king. From that, then, we can live equipped by the love of the king while awaiting the fullness of his rule. All along the way, God has equipped those who were his for the work he called them to. We see that in 1 Samuel. We see Samuel being equipped. We see Saul having an opportunity to be equipped and turning away from it. And we see David again taking up that mantle and walking in the power and the strength of his God rather than in himself. And this word equip is important for us this year because it's our theme. 
And it, in fact, is something that we will find in our application of our passages from 1 Samuel this year. In love, then, Christ equips us for three things in closing. First of all, he equips us in our character. Beginning with God's concern for human leadership and for Christian faithfulness, Christ provides for us a heart wholly devoted to the Lord. Just as we asked with the kids, David had this heart that was after God's own heart. We too can have that heart as well. Secondly, he equips us for worship. This is another big theme in the book of Samuel where we see errors over and over in how people are approaching worship. But Christ, after giving us a heart after God, prepares us to be confident in him that our life in worship, of our devotion, of our corporate worship, of even our work in our careers and our jobs, time in our family, of everything, if we'll say, Lord, we want everything in our lives to be an act of worship, we can be confident in Christ that those things will be pleasing to him because Christ has become our sacrifice, because Christ has done all things well on our behalf. Lastly, he equips us for victory. Victory over sin and temptation, the temptation to live like the world, to think like the world. He gives us victory over our enemies, over Satan and the world, and even our own self, our fleshly hearts. He provides all these things all to the day that his rule is fully realized at the return of Christ. David was anointed in the book of 1 Samuel, but he doesn't actually become crowned king until 2 Samuel. And so there's this period of waiting in the second half of this first book we're looking at that's going to be fulfilled in the second. And that's kind of where we live right now in the waiting for the true coronation of Christ in this world. We can have confidence that he indeed will come. He indeed will reign and be crowned over all things. So how do you need to be equipped today? Do you need to be equipped in your character? Do you need to be equipped for worship? Do you need to be equipped for victory in this Christian life? Christ is able to do that, but he's going to start at the place of your heart. He's going to start by shaping your heart to be a heart after his own.